I was living with my grandfather at the time, and I guess when I walked in the door, I already knew, like, right when I walked in the door, but I walked in and he told me that, uh, I don't even think he told me that they found him guilty. I think they, he just told me that he wasn't coming home right now and that, don't worry, like, it wasn't over, but he's not coming home today. It wasn't over with. And, um... I just remember being sad as hell. Because if you think about it, one person is sentenced to life in prison or put on death row, but they're not the only ones affected. You're sentencing their children to a dadless life, you know, a fatherless life. You're sentencing them to just hurt and confusion and you know not understanding how to accept it because it's not normal I can't go on Google and say my dad was wrongly convicted where do I go now what do I do now Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it episode 22 part 2 Jamie's sentencing we got life the mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. We thought the title, We Got Life, was appropriate for part two of the sentencing episode because every single person who cared about Jamie or believed in his innocence was also given a life sentence. This episode focuses on the effects of the life sentence on Jamie's family. I want to share something with with you guys that I haven't really shared with very many people at all. This is very uh, personal to me, and uh, you know, I'd been arrested for something I had I didn't do. I'd um, I'd sat in the county jail for almost two years. I'd went through a, a terrible trial. I, I'd been found guilty, and my life uh, at that at that moment um, was um, over. You know, it it, it was over, and, and I was probably in the darkest um, place before the night before that sentencing than that, that, that I'd ever been in in, in my entire life. And, uh, you know, they've been giving me some medication um, to help me sleep for, you know, months because I just, I couldn't sleep, you know, and, and uh, I've been saving that medication up. And um, the night before my sentencing, you know, I had about a hundred of these pills and I had spread all of my kids' pictures out on my bed, you know, and I had this this whole collage of my life and my family and my kids spread out on my bed. And, um, you know, I, I just, I was just like, you know, I'm not going to let them, you know, I'm going to, I'm just not going to let them do this to me. You know, I'm going to take this from them, you know? And, uh, you know, I shoved all them, I shoved all them pills in my mouth, you know, and I, I, uh, I, I tried to get them down, you know, and, and, uh, I, I, I I kept seeing those uh, pictures of my kids, you know, and and uh, 
justice, you know. I, at, the, at, at that moment, you know, I, I, I just couldn't do it, you know. I, I could not allow that that final act to be the one thing that uh, my kids always uh, remembered me by, you know. So, you know, I always think that, you know, you know, during uh, all of this, you know, even if they didn't remember, or even if they didn't know, you know, they, they, they saved my life. So, anyways. Hi. I'm Nicole Snell, and uh, Jamie Snell is my father. Um, I believe I was about four when the wrongful conviction occurred, and they took my dad from me. Um, so, for the past 14 years, I've lived without really knowing what it's like to grow up with a father. Um, and I think what people need to realize is that when people support my dad, they support my family. And, you know, we all appreciate it. We may not be very vocal in it, but we do appreciate it. And um, there's no words to describe how much we appreciate it. Um, you know, when I was a child and I rode the bus to school, in elementary school, I used to sit there and look out the window and I'd imagine my dad coming by in the car and taking me off the school bus and taking me home and I wouldn't have to go to school that day, you know, and he'd be home and he'd be free. You know, that's just something that I always thought about. <laughs> that was my little fantasy as a child and it's something that still kind of haunts me to this day because I don't think anybody will ever really understand how much this has affected my family. I mean, I know that I would be a different person if my dad would have been here. I may have been better, I may have been bad, but I would be different. You know, I don't know who I'd be, I don't know who my family would be. I'd, I wouldn't have gone through some of the things that I've had to go through in life. And I just, it's undescribable how much this has affected not just my dad's life but his family you know and me and my mom and my sisters and my brothers you know and even my aunts and uncles you know everybody that knew and loved my dad have been affected by this and um you know i've had to to grow up with a little less than other people because of it i have a single mom you know she's raised five kids all by herself. Um, my parents, Jamie and Tammy, have both pushed me to strive to be better, you know, than what the justice system has done to us. And so because of that, I've, I've graduated high school. I'm currently enrolled full-time in college. You know, I'm going to be a vet one day, unless I change my mind. And, um, I'm trying to continue to make them proud, you know, and to show them that I won't let this affect me because that's something that has been a big point 
in me growing up is not to let this affect me. There's no helping it, it will affect me, but I can choose how it affects me. And I will not let it affect me in a negative way. Because I'm, I'm better than that, and at this point, you know, I just want to make my dad proud as much as I can. And um, it's hard because I don't have a car, I don't have even a license, I take the bus to school, I go to work every day, you know, I have a part-time job, and the only reason that I continue to strive for better things and to continue to try to better my life is because I hope that one day I'll be a stronger person and my dad will be sitting next to me you know, and we'll be living a normal life again. And until then, I will strive to make my life as best as I can, you know. And I just, I don't understand. As I get older, I realize, you know, how often wrongful convictions occur. And it just, it amazes me. Because I don't understand how this could happen so often to so many people and nothing's done about it, you know? Because if you think about it, one person is sentenced to life in prison or put on death row, but they're not the only ones affected. You're sentencing their children to a dadless life, you know? A fatherless life. You're sentencing them to just hurt and confusion and you know not understanding how to accept it because it's not normal I can't go on Google and say my dad was wrongly convicted where do I go now what do I do now you know it's something that does happen a lot but isn't talked about you know it's not talked about and it just doesn't make any sense to me and I just, I want more people to pay attention, you know, because not only my dad should get free, you know, and get his wrongful conviction overturned, but anybody who's had to deal with this, you know, everybody deserves better. And I believe that, you know, Bill Little would want his murderer to be in prison for life, not my dad, you know, I think the person that did this, that actually did it, will have to live with themselves, but my dad should not live with somebody else's mistake, because my dad is an innocent man, and I'm just gonna close this now before I get too emotional, and um, just let everybody know that I appreciate all your support and I'm looking forward to the day that you know all the hard work pays off and my dad's here so thank you all for listening um, thank you dad for caring and striving to make me a better person as best as you could I love you I love you all thank you my name is James Christopher Snow Jr. But everybody just calls me Jr. I'm currently incarcerated at Pontiac 
correctional facility in the MAGS unit, and I've been in and out of correctional facilities since January of 2002 was the first time I was put into a juvenile correctional facility, and it was maybe less than 12 months after my father was sentenced to life. When I was around nine or 10 years old, I lived in Florida, and it was me, my dad, and my older brother, and it's where all the good memories from my childhood come from, and uh, I think it was probably a mother's nightmare, but a boy's dream come true. Can't remember, like, a lot of that time. Like, I don't remember times at all, and I really don't remember how much time I spent there. I don't remember um, most of it, but I do have these really distinct memories, like running in the backyard, catching all the snakes that I could find. Me and my dad used to catch every snake that we saw, and I remember going to work with him a lot. I remember the tree lot, where we'd take all the trees and chop them up, and then we had a big wood splitter. And he let me, like, split the wood into firewood. I remember that. And I remember going to school there. And it was fun. It was um, the better part of my life. And it's, like, the only time I really remember actually being able to be a kid. Like, I think pretty quickly after I left Florida, I don't remember being a kid much after that. I do remember during his, during his trial, we went to see him a lot. And I do have pretty distinct memories of um, the county jail visiting room and, you know, passing the phone back and forth and talking to him while he was locked up. And I remember that we, we all knew, like, when you walk out of the county jail from the street level, if you look up, there's just all these like small windows and that's all county jail cells and that's where everybody's at and I remember we distinctly knew like where my dad was at he was on the corner I used to always pick up rocks and throw them at his window to get his attention and one day we were coming out of visits and I didn't see him at the window so I was trying to get his attention and I guess I picked up too big of a rock because I threw it up there I cracked this window, and hopefully the statute of limitations never run out on that. As I recall, I remember him telling me like that was a really good sale, and once the window broke, they had to move them. You know, obviously later on in life, I ended up in that county, and I've actually been in that cell. It's the very corner cell in West Hot. I guess it's maybe the handicapped cell, but, you know, they never really actually use it for a handicap cell just anybody can get it it's a big cell with a nice sink and a lot of extra space and uh, i busted his window got him kicked out i think it was probably maybe nine or ten months after he got sent that i started getting into a lot of trouble and um I was sent to St. Charles in January of 2002. It was maybe like a few days after my 12th birthday, 
everything that was um, the minimum age requirement at the time was 12 years old to go to juvenile institution. So I just qualified for the party. Since 2002, I think, all the way up until 2020, so for the past maybe roughly 18 years, I think I've probably been institutionalized in one correctional facility or another for maybe, I guess it'd probably be almost 15 out of the last 18 years, maybe 14 out of the last 18 years I've been incarcerated in one place or another. And um, now I'm currently in Pontiac and I am waiting for a transfer once the coronavirus is over with, I should be transferred to state bail, and hopefully I'll be able to get on a wing with my dad. And um, I don't know, I've been trying to find a way, maybe it sounds crazy, but I've always thought or felt like if they refuse to let him come to me, then I would just find my way to him, and uh, maybe hopefully I'm just a few months away. I remember the day that, I guess it's not his sentencing, but it was the day that the jury came back with the verdict, and um, I was young, I was only, I guess he was only 11 years old, so I mean, I don't really remember a lot of like, the days prior or you know a lot of the stuff that was going on but I know that I know that my family my mom and everybody were like really optimistic that it was all going to be over with and that you know my dad was close to coming home and I remember that feeling that everybody was everybody was really hopeful nobody was thinking that he was going to get found guilty so I just kind of remember like being really certain that I was, you know, finally going to get to go back to Florida. And I recall my mom taking me to a visit one time in the county, in the county jail. And I'm not sure if it was while the jury was out because I can't remember how many days or how much time it was. So I know it was, I know it was getting close to the end of the trial or maybe even while the jury was deliberating. But I, I remember visiting my dad in the county jail, like, he took me to the county, I could show you the exact room that we were in, I remember that specifically, I remember it was me and my mom, and my brother, and I remember talking to my dad through the glass, and him just telling me that, that it was all about to be over with, and I remember him telling me that, really soon, that we were gonna pack up all our stuff, and we were gonna get in the car, and we were gonna drive back to Florida, that was my reality. Like I, I didn't expect anything but that. I, when he told me that, that's just what I believed in. So that's what I was waiting on. And I think I, I even like remember um, packing up my stuff, like having my clothes all packed up, like I was, I was ready to go. So the day that the verdict came back, I know I remember getting on the bus that day and I remember that 
you know, everybody was really certain that it was coming soon. Like, whatever decision was going to be made, it was going to happen soon. And um, so I remember going to school that whole day and, like, just being anxious to get home. Like, I guess in my mind, I was just a kid, and in my mind, I figured, like, once I got off the bus, then I was going to walk into my house, and my dad would be there. I remember riding the bus home and feeling like it was the longest ride, bus ride ever. I remember my bus driver, when I was getting off the bus, I remember, I guess, maybe she already knew, maybe she had already heard it in the news or something, but I, I just remember her, like, giving me a hug and, um, like, telling me, like, I don't know, I can't remember, but I just know it felt, it felt like different obviously she didn't give me a hug every day when i got off the bus i remember telling me like something like well i'll see you tomorrow right or something like that and i got off the bus um, i went inside and i was living with my grandfather at the time and i guess when i walked in the door i already knew like right when i walked in the door but I walked in and he told me that, uh, I don't even think he told me that they found him guilty. I think they, he just told me that he wasn't coming home right now and that don't worry, like it wasn't over, but he's not coming home today. That's what they told me that, that he wasn't coming home today, but that he would uh, be home soon or sooner or later and it wasn't over with. And uh, I just remember being sad as hell. I remember going to my room and laying one minute left. in my bunk. And I guess I'll probably lay there for a couple days, maybe. I think that throughout my whole life, like, um, from the outside, but then people could look at how everything's turned out, you know, not only for me, but for my older brother and my older sister. You know, say, well, if this wouldn't have happened, maybe things would be different, and I guess maybe that's probably true. My dad was was put in prison um, for a murder that he didn't commit, and I think it obviously changed the trajectory of my life and all of my family's life. I mean, there's no doubt that if things would have been different and this didn't happen, then things would be different for me too as well but I also just hope that you know my dad and my mom and everybody in my family just know that um I don't feel like I was victimized or was a victim of this I I made my own choices obviously if my dad would have been there things would have really been different but even still I um I take responsibility for everything that I've ever done and my dad was there enough to let me know that, you know, what was right and what was wrong. And I, and I still made my own choices. In a few months, maybe two months, not even, 30 days, 35 days, I'll be 31 years old. And now I will hopefully be very close to spending some time with my old man. Kurt and Christine Lovelace recently did an interview with Snowfiles for upcoming episode 23. 
Kurt is a former Illinois state attorney who was maliciously prosecuted for the murder of his wife nearly eight years after her death. His first trial ended in a hung jury. Thankfully, he was acquitted in his second trial. Kurt has since started his own practice and represented Junior in the matter for which he's currently incarcerated. As a family with children of someone who was wrongfully accused and incarcerated, they gave us great insight on the experience. The following is a brief clip from the upcoming interview in reference to Junior Snow. I, I want to talk a little bit about kids of parents, whether it be a mom or a dad who has gone into the prison system and sometimes they're left with their grandparents or just a parent and sometimes they're really young as in the instance of Jamie's kids. You know, that wasn't our experience. Our kids were a little bit older, so they, it's not like they were infants and babies and things of that nature. However, I do want to talk a little bit. We had a client um, who, who we adore and is the son of a wrongfully convicted man in Illinois. And the son has had trouble and his brother had been in, in trouble since his dad has been in prison. So I, I don't want it to sound as though, you know, you just have the strong enough mom or you have a strong enough dad or you have a strong enough, you know, guardian and everything with those kids is going to be okay because that's just not the case. But this young man just lost his way and had almost seemingly not much to grab onto that was real and he just kept getting into trouble and unfortunately because his dad's conviction was highly publicized in the community he lives in and they were still living in this community he was an easy target and so once he was on the radar of the police he remained on that radar and at one point when we were in court for a pretrial hearing for this young man, Kurt asked a clerk in a courtroom, an empty courtroom, uh, about a, a scheduling time. And as we turned to leave the courtroom, you could hear the clerk talking to the bailiff and saying, oh, you know who that is? And just in a really snide tone, that's the son of so-and-so. And of course, they all knew who it was because it's the son of a man who was convicted of murder in that same community years prior. With Junior, you know, um, who I'm speaking of, um, you know, somebody on the outside will look at him and just say, oh, there he is, you know, following in his dad's footsteps, look at the criminal. But that's just not who Junior is. Um, you know, he, he lost his way, he got in trouble, and he was sentenced, and, and we did what we could do to help him. But to... To look at him and know that for his lifetime, he is going to be compared to somebody who is a convicted murderer. Granted, we know wrongly, but a, a majority of the community is not going to see it that way. They're just going to see it as, ah, just another one of those snowboys in trouble. And, you know, and, and we watched as Junior's face was plastered over local um, social media websites and, and comments that people made about Junior on those websites, including the local police department. And there were comments that were really 
ugly and hate-filled. And, and I don't understand why, but that's what his mother had to look at. That's what his siblings had to look at. And, you know, there's no one that can get into Junior's head and say, you know, I'm going to tell you why Junior made these choices or did the things that he did. Is it because Jamie's been in prison most of his life? Maybe. Is it because he didn't have a dad guiding him? Maybe. Is it because he didn't trust, um, you know, a community that put his dad in prison and he just lost his way? And may, I, I mean, there's no way for us to know that. But it is one of the most harmful outcomes of a wrongful conviction is the things that happen to the kids. Some kids may hide it away better than other kids. You know, we, we hope with our own children that um, they can, you know, deal with things in, in a positive manner, as positive as possible. I, you know, I don't know. We don't know what the future is going to hold for them and the decisions they're going to make or how this affects them long term. Um, for Jamie's kids, you know, um, I, I see the sweetness in them, even even in their troubled times. I, I see their kindness and their sweetness and their expressions that are Jamie's expressions. And, and it's just not something that I would wish on anyone ever and um it is again i think one of the biggest fallouts from a wrongful conviction is what it does to the children in here i did a i did a paper for northwestern university i took a class on restorative justice and and, and i did a paper on the effects of incarceration on the kids that are left behind and the thing that really, really pissed me off the most, I mean, it, it, it stunned me, and I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it, was that there are studies, there, there, there have been studies on this, this phenomenon all the way back to the 1950s. So they've known since the 1950s that incarcerating parents, it has a a negative effect on children. And it's been estimated that there's like two and a half million people in, in prisons and jails across the United States. And it's been estimated that up to 10 million kids have been left behind. And there's no federally mandated programs to to deal with this with this problem. You know, and it, it, it just, it, it made me, it made, it made me so angry because I, I could see how the studies and, and uh, all the data that had been gathered over the years, I was tracking it with, with my own kids, you know, and, 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 and watching what was happening to my, my older kids because of my incarceration. And it's just, we live in the, you know, in, in one of the richest countries in, in the world, but we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. And, you know, we don't take care of the kids that are left behind. And, and you know, when, when something happens, uh, you know, to, to, to their parents, and uh, it's, just a, it's just a vicious cycle uh, that, that, that uh, you know, these kids are caught up in. Once, once a kid enters the juvenile, court system, they're almost 
90%, there's almost a 90% chance that they're going to end up in the adult system. You know, and they know these things. So, you know, it's very um, disheartening to know that, you know, that they know this stuff and they don't do anything about it. You know, there, there, there was so, and it's, it's really discouraging to, to, to see that, you know, our government doesn't really care about kids that are left behind. They just don't. Whether the parents deserve to go to jail or not is irrelevant to whether or not we take care of the kids that we leave behind. You know, they need counseling, they need tutoring, they need mentoring. I mean, the, the, the federal government finds, uh, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars to probably tens of millions of dollars to take care of, you know, national parks, you know, but we don't take care of the national treasures in our country, and that's our kids. And uh, it's very, it's very disappointing to know that. I, I really thought the paper was going to be a cinch, right? I, I, I didn't think that there was, you know, any, it was going to be a, uh, just as long as I did it, I'd pass, you know, I, I, I didn't think that there would be such a huge amount of data and studies and, you know, papers that have been written on that exact, um, you know, issue. And uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was very disappointing. Do you think just because your kid knows the difference between right and wrong that they're going to choose right over wrong, but you, you don't realize that they don't have the mental capacity sometimes when they're young and going through something traumatic to know they don't know how to to deal with those sorts of things. And I, I know now, I didn't know at the time, and it took me a very, very long time. And, and, and I really came to terms with a lot of it when I was doing my, my when I was studying to do my paper uh, for Northwestern. That's when I really came to terms with I was like, oh, wow. That's why I was doing that dumb shit that I was doing. I'm sure that had things have been different, you know, had there have been some programs, had there have been things that, you know, that, that, that I could have availed myself of, you know, when, when I was going through that, you know, it's, it's but, you know, there, there, there was nothing. It's funny, no kid left behind unless, they're, unless they're, they're, their parents go to jail. And then they're going to get left behind. And you know, I I am I am thankful that my youngest kids were so young that they didn't really realize what was going on with me. You know, my oldest kids it was right there in their face. They had no choice but to see what was going on. You know. Leslie, what are your overall thoughts on the sentencing? What really stuck out to you? Well, I see history repeating itself here. It struck me that Jamie started committing adult offenses after his mother died when he was just 17. 
and a professional documented that he was neglected and didn't receive the help he needed. Then we have Junior, Jamie's son, telling us that it was only 10 months after his father was taken from him that he found himself in the custody of IDOC. And he didn't get the help he needed because his primary parent was taken, leaving his single mother with five children aged 2 to 15 in one home. So I find it really ironic that Tina Griffin put it on record that Jamie was incapable of living a law-abiding life and it had nothing to do with losing a parent at a young age. And then because of what she did, that history actually repeated itself again immediately within that exact same year. And she has personal responsibility for that. And it happened because of the stance that she took in this case to manipulate testimony and secure an extended sentence. So then that natural consequence responds like, hey, everyone, if you missed the first time James Snow lost a parent, here's another James Snow. And you can just watch his life fall apart again. Um, and it's as Jamie always says, none of these people had any regard for him and his children. And it's also what Brenda Little said, that there were multiple murders that day. But in my opinion, after reading all the evidence and the testimony, the Snow family suffered the same losses as a little family when Bill was shot down. And it's awful. And the injustice of this case goes a lot further than the lives of just two men. And if you really think about it, that's also an injustice that affects all of us. It, it does. It affects all of us down the line. And when you think of Innocence Project statistics, say there may be 200,000 people in prisons that are innocent right now, which I think is conservative estimate. It's affecting, you know, every each, each one of those 200,000 people have families and friends and support, you know, people that have been affected by it, you know, attorneys, the span is, is incredible. So Leslie, you've been working on this, Bruce, you've been working on this wrongful convictions. I've been working on wrongful convictions. We know how it affects our families, you know, just the time, you know, the time that it takes to, to work on this stuff. And, and it's, it can be stressful. Absolutely. Just with that alone, you know, it, it's just a huge span of people that, you know, it can have a negative impact on. Hopefully we'll have a positive impact on Jamie's case and, and others, you know. We view we it a little differently because we're viewing Jamie as we know him to be. We know he's innocent. But when looking like at the sense, sentencing hearing or the view of the court, um, sympathy for his family is not going to come into play. It should, but it's not going to, because in my mind, prosecutors are vindictive. You know, the justice system today, uh, prosecutors put far too much focus on punishment. Like, lengthy prison terms are considered victories in their office. Tina Griffin pressured the judge to sentence Jamie to life, even though the guidelines suggested 20 to 60 years. And I believe me personally, I believe the current system creates vindictive prosecutors like Tina Griffin. The entire culture needs to change. And until it does, you're not going to see any sympathy for families of people like Jamie Snow. Right, because they're he's up on the stand and they're saying, the jury said you're guilty, you're guilty. So we don't have any sympathy for you. It lays at your feet. You're the one that caused this trauma for your family. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. 
In this second part of episode 22, we heard what it's like to try and find your way in a small town after your dad's been convicted of a murder he did not commit. We heard from Jamie's son, who described what it's like to watch your dad on trial, understand his sentence, and then spend the next two decades trying to get to him on the other side of the bars. We also heard from his daughter, who described the struggle just as steep, even when you're on the right path, eerily, both siblings, on distinctly different trajectories, still had the same daydream of their father rescuing them from the school bus and taking them to a better life. The truth is, the trauma of a wrongful conviction is real, measurable, and actually tangible. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Want to join the Jamie Snow support team? Become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Just go to snowfiles.net and click on Be My Patron on Podbean. All donors will have our undying appreciation and acknowledgement on the show. The highest tier donors will be invited to host a QA segment. Funds are used to cover our administrative costs and to keep Jamie in the media. Sometimes, even prosecutors are wrongfully accused of murder. We know one who, despite this trauma, has simply persisted and doggedly continues to fight criminal injustice. That's next time on Snow Files.